We are an independent nation. We're a crown dependency. But if you look at a map of the British Isles and Ireland, you'll see that the Isle of Man is slap bang in the middle of it. So we're slap bang in the middle of the, the British Isles and we're slap bang in the middle of the Irish Sea. Thanks for tuning in to episode seven of season one, We Blue Dot, a conservation podcast. Enjoy listening. Welcome everybody, wherever you're listening from. Today we're joined by Lee Morris, the CEO of the Manx Wildlife Trust based in the Isle of Man. Lee has had a fascinating career so far, from botanical gardens to zoos and from Yorkshire to St Helena. He also has an MSc in international horticulture, is a qualified adult teacher and was a trustee of the Marine Conservation Society. Lee, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to We Blue Dot. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So how are you doing, first of all, and how's life on the Isle of Man been over the last year or so? Oh, it's been interesting. So I moved to the Isle of Man in January 2020. So when we went to the first lockdown, it became the norm after a few months. So lockdown was my Isle of Man normal. But thankfully, the Isle of Man's actually done okay out of it, I think, touch wood. Yeah. is that we came out of lockdown in June. So the, all the second half of last year, we were we were operating as normal, apart from not being able to get on and off the island easily. Mm. Um, we're in lockdown now, but there's only been one case, and that was traced in the last few days. So hopefully, touch wood, uh, towards the end of the month, we should be back out of lockdown and uh, looking forward to a spring, late spring and summer. Yeah. So yeah, it's been really quite good. And I think lockdown actually for... For Max Wildlife Trust has not all been bad. Okay. Um, the Isle of Man government has been, I think they've handled it overall really, really well. And they've, you know, they've offered uh, some support, um, not just financially, but but actually, you know, just been supporting being able to operate. So that's that's worked well. I think the homeworking and the becoming more digitally savvy has been another advantage or advantages of, of the lockdown. So although it's undoubtedly cost us some income and it's been a challenge. I don't think it's been all bad. Uh, and I think on the other side, we'll be uh, in some ways better. Yeah. Well, it was looking on the bright side as well. I guess there's good and bad of being on an, on an island in the middle of a pandemic. As you say, you guys have been able to live life a wee bit more normally than us over in Scotland. Um, that's for sure. Um, but as, you, as I said, you're, you're currently the CEO of the Manx Wildlife Trust. So we'll talk a bit about that in a wee minute. But I like to give listeners the opportunity of hearing how our guests got into their current roles. So could you give us a wee bit of a background on your, your career route and the variety of different jobs that you've had? Wow, okay. Um, now I'm over 50, it becomes a longer story. I don't know if I can say a short answer to that anymore. Um, I'll try and give the short version. Um, 16, Dunthorpe Grammar School for Boys. Um, school education wasn't for me. I wasn't bad. I just didn't really enjoy you know, and it was years later than I did teacher training that I realised that I'm a kinesthetic, active, visual learner and mm. sitting down in a classroom of 30 boys while someone chalk, talks and chalks wasn't the best for me. So I left school. I didn't go into sixth form. I then went and did an apprenticeship in horticulture. I'd always liked mm. being outside. Actually, it's probably the, the one bit of this to close the loop on probably goes back to my primary school days where one of my teachers at the time used to take, take us to Askham Bog uh, pond dipping and frog spawn and tadpoles which is the season for that now 
um, and just going with the net and learning about water boatmen and pond skaters and, and Canadian pondweed and duckweed and all these other things that I that inspired me. And then I started fishing and just being outside. So the love of outside was always there. So leaving school and outside career, I sort of fell into an apprenticeship in, in horticulture, went to what was and still is one of the UK's largest tree and shrub producers, Johnson's of Wixley, just outside York. I call them my karate kid years. I grew up a lot. <laughs> I learned how to graft trees and drive tractors and rotivate and tie up bundles of berberus and pull thorns out of my hands on a night in winter. So I, I had a really good grounding in, in horticulture uh, and plants and then went to college. I'd grown up enough to go back to college and do out the, the, the sixth form that I never had. So Ask and Brian College, I did a national certificate in horticulture. Uh, and thank you to a couple of really inspiring teachers who um, who really did motivate me extremely well. I think I shone there after. And then I, from, from, from Ask and Brian, I went to Pershaw College, did a three-year course in nursery stock production, became their nursery manager, um, fitted in a high national diploma part-time, stayed there for about seven or eight years, ma mainly running a nursery, but also doing semi-professional or professional fishing. So I got to fish a lot <laughs> out of the Midlands for match fishing. We'll leave that for, for another day. And again, came to a point in life where I, I, I then actually had a phone call one day uh, from a guy that used to be head of horticulture at Pershaw. He'd then gone to be principal at the Welsh College of Horticulture. And he must have liked me. I, I remember once he nominated me for a, a medal from BTEC, which I was lucky to get a national medal because he'd nominated me. So he, he clearly had a soft spot for me. Um, he rang me up and said, well, you, how, you know, you're managing a nursery, you're fishing lots, but, you know, have you not got any more ambition? He said, would you like to come to the Welsh College and be a lecturer or a training officer? So I went for it, went to Wales, had six or seven years there where I, I learned, again, a huge amount, um, ended up being head of department, took actually, managed to fit in a sabbatical for a year to go and do a master's that was including a chunk in the Netherlands. I did every teacher training course I could do. So I did sitting girls level one, level two. So I got an adult education diploma. I did all my NVQ quals, assessors and verifiers, accreditation of prior learning coordinators. I got the suite of these things and learned a huge amount about managing, teaching, training, um, everything from practical skills programs right up to degrees, foundation degrees, etc. So that was a huge, huge thing. Um, and then in this world of synchronicity, <laughs> I, um, I took my sabbatical, went to Netherlands, Rittel, international horticulture again and it was an, it's an amazing one year of my life so glad I did that because I learned so much more beyond the actual course uh, but I again I, I threw myself in it completely came back to Welsh College had to stay for two years as part of the deal for the sabbatical and it was almost two years to the day that an advert appeared in my pigeonhole for the job of head of school of horticulture at the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh I applied got a train to Edinburgh um, there's a couple of silly stories on why I knew I was going to get the job um, I won't share now <laughs> But I went for. I, mean, I remember going for an interview. It's one of those bizarre things. I walked into this wonderful place and all this history from the 17th century. Sat down and had a conversation with three people for an hour. And the following day, they rang me up and said, "Would you like to be our head of school of horticulture?" Mm -hmm. um, ten years, amazing, amazing ten years at Edinburgh Botanics, which is a wonderful place. Yeah. And people were amazed when I left. I had friends that said, "We thought that was a job for life. What are you doing?" Mm -hmm. There's always a push and a pull, and the pull was that I didn't want to just work with plants anymore. I'd been involved in plant conservation projects all around the world with Edinburgh Botanics, but it was very much about the plants. And I think you can't just do conservation if you just do the plants. You've got to do the whole mm. lot. 
um, and the opportunity came up to move to the Zoological Society in Edinburgh, so I could still stay in Edinburgh, which I loved. But went there as the Director of Community Conservation, and at that point took on a role across their education at the Edinburgh Zoo and the Wildlife Park, but also importantly their outreach projects. Um, and again, I learned a huge amount, suddenly as well as learning, you know, from the keepers about the how to keep um, Asian yeah. otters and, and how the, the intricacies of running a penguin enclosure. Yeah. I also engaged a lot with the Scottish wider biodiversity conservation. We had a fantastic project. I worked with some really, really passionate people. And certainly when I went into zoos, I wasn't, um, I wasn't totally, I wasn't against zoos, clearly. But when I, having now spent a couple of years working in zoos and, and engaging with the zoo and aquarium associations in Britain and Europe and the world, zoos have got a massively important, zoos and wildlife parks and aquariums have got a massive function because they connect to people about conservation who will never go to a nature reserve, mm-hmm, yeah. who will probably never watch a David Attenborough documentary. They don't, mm. but they'll take mm. their kids to the zoo. And in Edinburgh, Edinburgh Botanics, when I was there for 10 years, we had a huge ch- challenge of trying to get people to visit the Botanic Garden. And it was free. And we couldn't, and it was, a, you know, it was a, in the nicest possible way, a middle class institution. But if you went to Edinburgh Zoo, you would find people from the poorest sectors of Edinburgh who'd be paying for a, a family to go. That's two adults, two, three kids, plus the burgers, plus the everything else. And it was a hundred mm. quid plus the toys. And they were finding the money every year, once or twice a year, to take the kids to the zoo. So when you get that, then you see what an opportunity it is to work through zoos, with zoos for conservation. So then I went to Centralina. I oh, know I didn't. I, <laughs> then I ran the National Land Base College for two years, which is a different story. Everything from conservation courses to horticulture and agriculture and engaging much more then in the, the politics of centralised government in terms of agricultural development strategy and the National Farmers Unions, etc. I left there and at the same time got a wonderful chance to go spend two years in Centralina. It was uh, fantastic. And again, learnt lots. And we're coming to the end of two years there looking for the what next and there was a couple of what next opportunities and one of them was for Manx Wildlife Trust as their CEO so yeah. I think um, it was such a great chance to come to another island an independent nation a crown dependency so we're still in that territories network um, beautiful place great people but and some amazing wildlife but a chance to you know run an organization and, and hopefully really try and help and, and coordinate across the island so I'm sorry I'm in my 50s now and that wasn't a short I used to be able to answer that really shortly when I was in my 30s <laughs> yeah. but now I'm in my 50s it's a longer answer yeah so it's certainly you certainly had a good variety of different experience and jobs though um but and and then you've since you've come to the Isle of Man as you say it's been locked down most of the time but I guess that's given you the opportunity to to get out and about and see the nature of the Isle of Man I would imagine yeah I mean I love to scuba dive um and I don't mind saying you should work hard in life you should play hard so I think anywhere that that we live from now on is going to be able to have scuba diving in it somewhere so it was definitely an attraction of coming here and I've not been disappointed um so a lot of my engaging with nature on on a weekend is typically you know going out on boats traveling around the island going diving but we have 24 25 nature reserves two brilliant nature discovery centers at the north and south of the island there's a national nature preserve at the point of airs there's some fantastic things here for nature there really is you know upland peaks um, it's, tr- it's tremendous so i'm reveling about exploring that uh, and also learning about it and i do work with some very talented and knowledgeable ecologists so i've got good people to learn from as well 
um, and the islands of biosphere which was another attraction with it we're the only full nation unesco biosphere in the world uh, and although it's not a stamp of um, perfection it's certainly a stamp of intent and a, and a stamp of a certain quality of what we're trying to do as an island biosphere so that's quite uh, inspiring as well to be part of, of delivering on that mm-hmm. well i it's quite um it seems like quite a unique place i've never been myself and i'll be honest i didn't know very much about the isle of man until more recently as you know because one of my wee sisters lives over there now hello ellen but it does seem like a really beautiful place and and i've been learning a wee bit more about it so yeah can you tell us a wee bit more then about the Isle of Man and and then what the Manx Wildlife Trust is doing around the island. I mean, it is it's a very central location, isn't it, in the bigger picture of of the United Kingdom and Britain. Well, we are an independent nation. We're a crown dependency. But if you look at a map of the British Isles and Ireland, you'll see that the Isle of Man is slap bang in the middle of it. So we're slap bang in the middle of the the British Isles and we're slap bang in the middle of the Irish Sea. So strategically, for example, our bird observatory on the Calf of Man, that's collecting data from bird observations and bird ringing that absolutely is crucial in terms of feeding into the bigger data sets. So how how is climate change or industrialisation affecting or impacting on the Irish Sea. So we're at a key point to measure that data. And that would be the same for any of the migratory species, basking sharks, seals, various birds, the seabird movement around the Irish Sea, uh, etc. So we, we are in a key place for data collection. We're very aware of that. What else is interesting about it as well? We do have upland peats. Uh, we've got some of the oldest marine nature reserves, more than 50% of our nought to three nautical miles zone is is now a marine nature reserve and and we have a marine office that works closely on that so in terms of what we're doing um we've got three key aims now and the whole of the wildlife trust movement is moving very much towards this or we're following their lead so we have you know how do we drive a nature recovery network how do we get more of the isle of man to be for nature and there's probably two probably a million challenges but the two biggest challenges in that um firstly the isle of man's a wonderful place for nature it's beautiful look at the picture behind me it's the calf of man and the calf sound and you can find some beautiful places and i think outside activities is very ingrained in what manx people and you know people that live in the island do so one of the biggest challenges that we have that i have is is trying to convince people that it's not perfect and they shouldn't be complacent and that we still need to conserve what we've got and also restore some of what we don't have anymore. And that's a big challenge when everyone says, oh, we're a wonderful place for nature. So you have to, you don't want to be half empty, but you do need people to understand that, that, that there's an issue. Um, and the other challenge that we have is that the wildlife trust, you know, when they were set up, the, the typical mode of operation of a wildlife trust would be to buy land or get land donated put a fence up around it, make it into a nature reserve and conserve land for nature. Mm. And it's not that that's not important anymore. It is. And if you went to our website, you'd see that bullet point one of target one is look after our precious nature reserves. But our nature reserves are 0.2% of the Isle of Man. You know, agriculture covers 88% of the Isle of Man. Mm -hmm. So looking after 0.2% of the island is not good. It's not. It's not. It's look after 0.2% of the island. So we have to be more outward thinking. And that's in different ways. We have to connect to more people to get them to do more for nature in their own lives. We have to drive nature recovery networks and work with other landowners to make small changes. And, 
you know, that's why I think certainly for, for me, for my colleagues and for the wider wildlife trust movement now, we have to, for example, work with farmers. And I think one thing that helps me is that, you know, I've run a plant nursery. I can operate a crop sprayer. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that with bravado. I can have a sensible yeah. conversation about pesticide regulations and efficacy and how we and, and biological control methods and all those other things that a crop grower would understand. And I know that they have mm. to make money, but they can also do it better. And genuinely, if farmers work at the sharpest level, they can save themselves money and do better gains for nature. So there's an upskilling element to that. There's a whole conversation about how can we do that. And if we get a small gain across 88% of the island, that's massive. Uh for nature compared to just looking after 0.2% of it. So we definitely want to look after 0.2%, but it ain't good enough. Uh We've got to do more. We've got to get into other people's gardens. We've got to get to big landowners. We've got to do all those things that drive a nature recovery network. Then you add into that nature-based solutions to mitigate climate change. So we've got three things in the Isle of Man that we can impact into that on. One is the easy one. Well, not easy, but the one that easily understood is the trees. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're planting the first minister's forest is going in. We're, we've got a new woodland tree incentive program coming out that we're part of. There's an agri environment scheme that started got launched this month that tree planting's part of. So there's ways that we can plant more trees. You know, the island clearly needs to decide because if you plant trees in a place, you can't have other things there. So the, there's a there's a strategic conversation about what land we use to plant trees. But we're we're doing that. Max Wildlife Trust have got a wonderful project at Ramsey that we're Ramsey Forest project that we're looking to plant more trees, and we've got a major donor that's going to help us, and we can have an inspiring place for people and you know carbon sink there. So trees is one. The second one is the peats. Yeah. So there's there's a large area about ten thousand plus hectares of upland peat in the Isle of Man. And one of my colleagues, one of my team, Sarah Hickey, she's working on actually getting the baseline data first. So actually measuring the area of peat and the depth of peat um, and then assessing its, you know, what needs to be done to restore some of the areas that are being damaged. And that's working closely with the Isle of Man government, uh, DEFA, Department of Food and Agriculture, to actually d- to do that and, and, and look at how can we restore some of those peats. And then the third strand of the nature-based solutions, the third big strand, is the blue carbon. So yeah. the biggest, it's not as easy to do blue carbon, you know, marine carbon sinks, but um, probably the, the most successfully and easy to measure one globally is mangroves. Um, seagrass is the, is, the, is the next one. And then the third one is salt marshes. Um, the Isle of Man is, is a really important place for seagrass. So all down the east coast, uh, literally from Port Erin up right to Ramsey, there's areas where there are seagrass. And there are areas that there used to be seagrass that we would like to try and restore and try and get people to help us restore it. Um, and we, of course, like all conservation and restoration work, we need funding to do that. But maybe there's carbon offsetting. If we, if we can get the calculation right in terms of carbon offsetting for seagrass, then, then, then we can, in effect, sell that to people to get carbon credits to help us restore our seagrass. The mm. calculations are done for trees not done yet for seagrass um and then the last one which we've got a little bit of in the island is salt marsh and there's two or three areas of salt marsh that that probably it's more about conserving those than than restoring them but because there's there's the one at pool dewey uh, you know people don't even know it's a salt marsh so the the dogs are trampling all over it they're damaging all the plants <laughs> Uh, but no one's ever told them. So yeah. there's an education and a conservation element to that as well. So nature-based solutions, nature recovery network, and the third one is just connecting people better to nature. And it's certainly, as you know, my background from education in all sorts of places, is there's a huge amount we can do in 
hopefully inspiring and educating and enabling people to do more for nature. So there's lots that we do, huge, huge amount number of volunteers, um, helping them all mm. prioritise. Mm. No, it sounds like I've just listened to you thinking, you know, you've got, oh, no wonder you got the job. You've got such a good, varied kind of background. As you said yourself, you've got the knowledge of the kind of horticulture and the agricultural side. You're obviously a diver. You've got the knowledge of the marine side and then the education as well. But though, I and mean, then those are all, particularly for an island, those are all very, very important things to take into consideration. But in regards to the education, obviously, we can come back to that. But yeah, I guess it's not just it. I mean, it's not just education of young people. People tend to think of it as skin of school kids and, and, and youngsters. It's the it's the adults and the different people that live around the island, the tourists, all the different people that are visiting. But that, as you know, that's that's my kind of passion and interest is just spreading the word a little bit. And hopefully that's what this podcast will do as well. What kind of species can you find in the Isle of Man? I mean, obviously, it's an island, as you say, in a very central location. So I imagine there are a lot of birds that come in and visit um and all sorts of different species yeah we have um this is why I'm a little crib sheet I, I don't profess to be a um a birder I'm learning uh, but I mean we'll seabirds there's some amazing I mean one, one of the it's a, it's a dive link but we get lots of nesting seabirds here in the in the summer um and diving with guillemots or under the cliffs where guillemots are nesting at the sugarloaf is was a highlight from last year and I hope to do it again this year Manx shearwaters Probably the the most impactful thing my colleagues and tell me that we've done on the calf of man in recent years. Um, we can't say the RAT word here; it's bad <laughs> luck. So we call them long tails or ringies or something else. <laughs> yeah. So we've not quite eradicated. There was one scene on a camera trap last year, but pretty much they've gone, mm. and that's made a massive difference. So, so for the Manx shearwaters, they've gone from zero birds nesting you know, 20 years ago, circa 20 years ago, to now about 700 pairs of nesting Manx shearwaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, puffins is the other one that we're, we're keen to bring back. And then there's a whole range of other things. So Manx shearwaters, guillemots um, in, in Peel, near the Manx Wildlife Trust office, we've got black guillemots that part of one of my colleagues, Lara, is doing is monitoring the black guillemots uh, as part of the DOI's pil- silt dredging. So we've got some amazing seabirds. We've got lots of other amazing birds. You've probably heard of, you know, hen, hen harriers mm-hmm, is, yeah. um, is a bird the Isle of Man's often associated with. Um, basking sharks, there's less basking sharks than there used to be, sadly, but there are still some. The good news is we don't think there's any less. We think they're just going around Ireland now. Or one of the theories is that going around Ireland. Why they're doing that is that climate change, is that because of the electric power cables from the wind farms sort of interfering with them? Is it because there's just no food here, again, linked to climate change? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there certainly still is basking sharks that come here. Uh, one of the most interesting and most controversial species that everyone wants to know about is the, can you guess? Uh... Wallabies. Did you know we had wallabies? <laughs> Yeah, no, actually, now you see it. Yeah, my sister's told me about them. Yeah. And there's not just one or two either. They're growing, they're, they're spreading. Um, I mean, ironically, there's a wallaby walk around at the wildlife park, which has got one, like when I went last, it had one wallaby in. And then you go half a mile up the road, and I'm sat in a field with six or seven of them just sat around munching. How did that develop? I mean, what happened there? Um, as, you... I think in the 1960s and 70s, various escapes from the wildlife park and of just colonising the Kuruks, mm. um, which is a, it's a wet, you know, boggy, scrubby area, which is very similar to their native Tasmania. So they're doing well. And they're controversial because in some ways they're going around munching the vegetation and they're an, you know, they're an invasive non-native species. Mm. 
the flip side of that, if you want to engage people from Douglas, those people who go to the zoo that will never go to a nature reserve, you tell them you're running a, a wallaby walk and they're all rocking up. So we, we plan to do some more wallaby walks this year, but very much not about them being fluffy wallabies, but more about the, the ecology of the Balaf Kurok, which is a Ramsar wetland site. And at the same time, communicating about the wallabies in a very neutral way, explaining the damage that they do, but also explaining why they're there, why they're interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't have an island policy on them. Um, I personally think Manx Wildlife Trust could be perhaps, you know, we need to be the catalyst or the champions to get us an island. What are we doing about wallabies, for example? Mm-hmm, so yeah. we have wallabies. Um, let's do the mammals quickly, because it's probably more interesting what we don't have. Um, so we don't have foxes. Um, we don't have badgers. Uh, we do have rabbits. We do have hares, mountain hares and brown hares. Um, we do have hedgehogs. <laughs> I won't keep going through the whole list. But there's some key species that we don't have. We don't have beavers and there's no intention to bring beavers. There's no squirrels and there's no intention to bring red squirrels because that, that's, that's been a topic bubbling for a few years about whether we should bring and use the Isle of Man as a squirrel, red squirrel sanctuary. Our stance is that they were never here, they never have been here yeah. and therefore we wouldn't want to bring them in. But then, of course, we've got wallabies hmm. and we let them live here. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm, you know, conservation is not black and white. No, no, I know. I can imagine, as you say, because it is an island, you've got that kind of almost like a nature reserve side to it that you imagine red squirrels could do well. But yeah, when I, I was reading up about the Isle of Man earlier on and I'm interested, obviously, in the history and the development of, of places like that. And it was saying that the first people, the, the evidence of the first people in the Isle of Man is about 10,000 years ago. But I imagine there's a lot of species that have been there for a lot longer than that. But then there'll be things like rabbits and stuff that might have been, I'm not sure, might have been brought over by people. Um, I mean, I've had some interesting conversations so far in other parts of the world for through this podcast. Like I was speaking to someone about Mauritius the other day in the islands round about there and no matter the climate, it's all the same problems as when people start moving over and um, bringing all the different invasive species and things with you. And as you say, even I can imagine the wallabies are cute and fluffy and people see them as a novelty, but they're definitely not not native. And if you're trying to look after the bigger picture um, of the landscape, I can imagine it's difficult. It's quite shocking, actually, when you said earlier on about the, the tiny percentage of the island that's kind of natural as opposed to the amount that's agriculture but it is it's not a very big island you know it's quite a small island isn't it really in the bigger picture yeah it's 35 miles by 10 or 15 I think forgive me if you're listening I've got that slightly wrong but that's roughly it 85 90,000 people one of the my two years on Santalina was actually really good in that small in that island context because there is a there is a difference if you're living on an island um and I don't want to sound glib about this or bravado, but when you've lived for two years on an island that's 10 by 6, that gets one boat a month <laughs> yeah. with 4,000 people, where everyone is related to everyone, mm. they don't just know every third person, everyone's related and knows exactly what you're doing all the time, every day. That is a small microcosm of an island. So coming here, people say, how oh, are you getting on in this small island? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> this is not a small island. <laughs> so I... <laughs> And some people might think I'm being a bit Yorkshire or cocky when I say that. I, I don't mean it in that way, but it was a really good grounding for two years in what was a s- small island and it not be an issue for me in, in what is, you know, a job where I'm liaising with government, NGOs, people, members, corporates. Those conversations, you know, I need to be able to understand what it's like for them living in a small island. So that helps mm. me. 
Well, the, I mean, going back to mentioning St. Helena, as you say, I mean, for anyone who's listening, who's not sure exactly, how far is it away from the kind of nearest land? As you say, there's one boat a month. It's a pretty remote place. Um, they, they get a flight a week now, but only, be, only for the last couple of years, but they still only get one boat a month. And they haven't been getting a flight a week since lockdown in South Africa. So uh, it's it's over a thousand miles from its nearest place, which is Ascension Island. And it's like 1,500 probably miles from Namibia. So it is slap bang in the middle of the South Atlantic. Lovely place, though. I'm going to be on their tourist board. You should, everyone should go there. And if you go, you mustn't go for a week. You've got to go for at least two. Yeah. Um, spectacular place. Well, I've obviously known you for a while, so I saw your updates on, on social media and stuff of all the pictures. It did look pretty amazing. But was it always just going to be for a, a few years? Did you plan to kind of come back over this way? Yeah, it, it was a two-year gig, and although mm-hmm. we could have stayed longer, and, and I was probably more inclined to stay longer. Yeah. It was, two years was was right. I mean, I did leave a bit of me there. Yeah. It was very nice life, and I was doing a, a lovely range of work. I was on the board of the National Trust there, involved with, and I was working for the government on agri-development and conservation side of the marine team. So I had, I had a very nice um, portfolio of work and did scuba dive probably every day. <laughs> so, I know, I know. It, lo- it does look, it looked amazing. It's but, always the same, though, when you go somewhere a wee bit more exotic than home. Um, as you say, you always want to go back. I mean, and how many, do you know, the, what's the population of St Helena? I mean... You joke. It's about no, it's about four thousand. Okay, four and a half thousand. Yeah. So like a big town, really. No, a small village. <laughs> well, to me, I suppose I've grown up in Scotland. That's quite a big town to me. Um, I've grown up in much smaller places than that, and but on the on a on the mainland. But I mean, well, we can move on to then talking about islands. In islands are very have always been very interesting to me in terms of archaeology and early people and obviously conservation and wildlife and things as well and. They do in some parts of the world because of their remoteness result in, you know, really unusual species, really unusual landscapes. So what role do you think islands play in conservation today? Um, I mean, they can be seen, I guess, as a as an example of the bigger picture. You know, if what you could do on the Isle of Man is maybe an example of what people can do um, throughout Britain and Ireland. But what um, role do you see them playing? Probably exactly what you just said then. I, I think they, they're a microcosm of everything. Um, and I think there could be exem- examples, exemplars of, of how we need to live. Mm. Again, going a little bit back to St. Helena, I, I also did some work on Ascension Island there around waste management. So I'm not a waste management expert. I went out to help with the education, and the communication around it. But by doing that, I learned a lot about waste management and recycling and the challenges on small islands from, you know, I was fascinated about what you can what what you do with waste. Mm-hmm. You know, aluminium cans. You know, if it if it if it costs you two thousand pounds to get a shipping container to and from Centralina, you can't afford to put plastic bottles in to recycle. It's just not worth it because mm. the plastic's mm-hmm. not worth it. But aluminium cans, they're worth six hundred to nine hundred pounds a ton, and you can get about seven or eight tons in a shipping container if you crush them. It's good business. Why wouldn't you? Mm. Yeah. You know, Ascension Island, you know, so the whole concept of, of, of island waste, energy, the, I'm not going to call it conflict, the, the integration of conservation and agriculture and food production and where people live and population. I think islands are microcosms 
and I think islands have got a role in being that, but also sharing with each other. This island or the island networks that I'm involved with, uh, there probably isn't enough sharing going on. You know, people on islands are trying to find money to do projects that actually someone on another island's already done it. And this could be a real step forward from this COVID pandemic is that like we're doing now on Zoom, more of these conversations can take place on Zoom with small islands. One thing that I learned in my 10 very, very enjoyable and hopefully worthwhile years in Edinburgh Botanics, I got to go to some fantastic conferences. Botanic Garden Conservation International. I was very fortunate to be in a position and to be asked to go and speak at these things. And when I went to these, this was for the Global Network of Botanic Gardens. There's over three, three and a half thousand botanic gardens in the world. If the conference was in China, you would get people from all the world's leading rich botanic gardens would go. So Kew, Edinburgh, Missouri, New York, Paris, Berlin, all the, you know, Singapore, they'd be at every conference because like me, they worked in a place that needed to be represented and they had budgets that could afford to go. And then in that Chinese conference, you'd also get, you know, the people from Laos would have saved up to send someone from Laos. One delegate would have got got the train up from Laos or driven up for three days. You know, people would have gone from all those Asian gardens. Two years later, there'd be a conference in Durban. And again, you'd have all the wealthy gardens there plus you'd have all the southern african gardens would go but none of the asian ones none of the central american ones next conference is in costa rica all the rich gardens would be there you get my point Mm -hmm. now if we do it by zoom they can all go to every one yeah everyone you don't it's not just one delegate either they can all rock up and i think the organizers of these conferences now have got to get that and they've got to do it better. And, and the, the online conferences now that are run well, they're fantastic. Breakout rooms, good show and tells, option for engagement. It's not just watching. You, you feel part of a conference. That's not expensive to do that now. The world knows how to do it. And we could be getting all those gardens from Africa and Asia and Central America interacting with each other in these conferences every time now. Even if we go back to face-to-face, I just hope that the world doesn't flip away from digital because all these conference sessions now, they should also be live streamed through Zoom or whatever they use so that all these other gardens can engage. I was doing this, I'm not claiming to be a trailblazer, but I used to go at these conferences and I used to make sure that my presentations were recorded and I used to put them on YouTube and then I'd send them around the network. Now, I'm sure some people thought, oh, look, he's just trying to promote his doing at all. I wasn't. I was genuinely saying, look, I've gone and spoke at this and if I'm doing a talk I want people to hear it but also you weren't able to go if you're interested watch it yeah (laughs) the connection with small islands now it's an open book if we do it well those organizations that coordinate small islands can connect small islands far better with the technology we've got now and they can also plug them in or showcase them more to the bigger countries bigger nations bigger land bodies about this is how you do Mm -hmm. it no, definitely. I mean, if one good thing to come from, uh, one of the good things to come from COVID is 
is Zoom. You know, I'd never heard of Zoom before all this happened or all the different means that you can use to video people, as you say, or call people all over the world. And you're totally right. I mean, people are getting a bit fed up with it because they miss the social interaction in real life, but we'll get back to that eventually. But I do think, as you say, for, I mean, you're talking about the example of, of gardens, but, you know, in my experience of like zoological conferences as well, they've gone all gone online. And whether it's the Wildlife Trust, I imagine you all communicate and stuff as well. So it's definitely something that we should keep using, as you say, and it makes it accessible to everybody. Um, well, almost everybody. I mean, it's interesting to hear. You don't want to just always hear from the big, the big shots. You want to hear from the little, uh, I don't know, remote islands in the middle of nowhere and what they're doing with their conservation work. No, definitely. But I think, um, I think it will. I think it will change a lot going forward of what organisations do. I think a lot more people are going to be working like this and working from home. So I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. But that brings me on to what I was wanting to ask you about as well as the whole idea of connecting people with nature. I don't know about over there, but over over here in Scotland, one of the good things to come from this whole pandemic has been a lot of people I know personally, a lot of people in the town I live in, you can see that they're connecting with nature a lot more. Perhaps beforehand they never did, you know, so it's it's nice in ways to see a lot more people maybe appreciating nature and what it does for our well-being in particular and our mental health. And I think that's hopefully going to be something we can all utilise going forward in the kind of conservation world um, because people have realised how important it is. Yeah, I think they have. Uh, certainly more so. I mean, we used mm. a closer to nature hashtag, as you do, and created films and people. I think there is a shift towards that. But some of these, there will just be blips and then it'll drop again. But I think that's where environmental organisations need to strategize and work together to keep that interest, keep people connected and show them that they can actually make a difference. And it's actually a really nice thing to do. Yeah, no, of course. Um, and as I say, I'm interested to see how it all develops in the next year or so. As you say, some people might just go back to the way they were before, but I think hopefully a lot of people will, will be much more engaged with nature and, and conservation. Do the wildlife trusts, am I right in saying wildlife trusts are kind of a network of people? Is it in kind of the United Kingdom and the Isle of Man? Do they all kind of communicate and work together? Well, uh, they do now through Zoom. Um, the, the CEO of the Isle of Scilly's Wildlife Trust, um, Sarah Mason, I, I think, Sarah, if you're listening to this, I've probably got the years wrong, but I, from what I can recall, you've been a CEO of a wildlife trust for about 10 years. And until this, till last year, you never went to any of the joint meetings where now she's in everything. Um, we have regular meetings now with, you know, 46 Wildlife Trust CEOs and chairs in the same thing, and they coordinate the Zoom webinars extremely well. So we're having breakout groups, working groups, interactive whiteboards. It's as, you know, I think as a movement, we've agreed now, you know, coming together to do PowerPoint presentations is a waste of time. We do them on Zoom. And when we come together, we'll go and visit nature reserves or do work together or do things that you can't do on a computer screen. Um, so I think it's been a huge plus. So we're one of 46 wildlife trusts. Um, all of them are independent charities. Um, we don't have a head office. We have a central office, but the central office does have its own CEO, Craig Bennett, who came to us from Friends of the Earth in April. Um, I think Craig's doing a fantastic job. He's not my boss, so I don't have to, <laughs> I've got no brownie points to get there. But I think he's doing a really fantastic job. And, and I think it's synchronous for me that I've joined the Wildlife Trust movement at a time where they're talking and 
proactively driving us to work together more as a movement. Um, I think one of the huge strengths of the Wildlife Trusts is that we have the small trusts that work regionally, locally, with our own volunteers and members and supporters and do really great things in counties or Isle of Man or Alderney or the Scilly Isles or, you know, wherever we might be. Um, but the yang of that is that we're not as strong sort of top down as something like, you say, RSPB would, where they're, they're you know, they've got a head office that oversees the whole of the British Isles and the rest of the, where they work around the world. And it's, you know, very much top down. So, and they can act and speak for 1.3 million members and all the rest that they do. So we think that our strength is the regions and the local connections. And we want to ensure that we keep that. But we also want to work better together as a federation so that we can speak as one voice and have the clout when we need to on the bigger issues. So, And I think the direction of the way that Craig is taking us and, and bluntly the CEOs and the chairs are you know, taking us collectively. We're, we're, it's not a, you know, we're, we're doing this as a movement. Um, that's really positive. And I'm delighted that I've landed into it at a time when we're doing that. Because I think for me, if, if we weren't doing that, I'd be shaking my head and say, why aren't we working together more? So the fact that all that is coming together now is great. Yeah, well, well, that's, um, you hit the nail on the head there. As you say, you're all, you've always said to me in the past that you, loads of different organisations need to work together and, and, and communicate. And it sounds, as you say, like, maybe this kind of Zoom side of things is also helping and aiding that. Now, we, I've got a few more questions before we run out of time. Um, I tend to ask everyone this question that's on the podcast. What advice would you give to someone who wants to work in conservation? Because there'll be people listening that might be dreaming of having your job. So <laughs> what kind of advice would you give them? Be positive. If you see a door open, a job in conservation, you've got to log the hours. You know, I've met a lot of people, be it people doing MSCs in botany and, you know, taxonomy of plants in Edinburgh Botanics or people who had done biology degrees or marine biology degrees that ended up, you know, volunteering in zoos or aquariums just to get their first step through the door. I think you've just got to do it. And those that persevere get the jobs. So I would say top tips would be enjoy it, keep going and don't, you know, don't view everything certainly in the first five maybe ten years as it's the money it's not about the money it's about building your cv and getting the knowledge and the connections and be strategic in your choices about what you do try and you know you know you might not want to go and study anemones in the north sea and try and get a career studying anemones in the north sea forevermore but if you're really interested in marine biology do marine biology <laughs> you know Get the places, join the Marine Conservation Society, join your local wildlife trust, do a sea search course, learn a dive, go rock pool, do be strategic in your choices and build your CV up. Yeah. And and yeah, as you said, networking, I guess, yeah. and just getting out there and don't be afraid to speak to people. As I've definitely done that. I've had a very random route into the the jobs that I've had so far so um so yeah it's definitely beneficial to get out there and talk to people and volunteer and as you say yeah that's I think that's essential these days but it's it's all good experience and finally how can listeners learn more about the Manx Wildlife Trust and how could they support your work over there well we'd love you to support us and generally that doesn't just mean give us money I mean please give us money that'd be great but I think first thing is go to our website mwt.im connect with us on social media we've got we've got a, some great content goes out through our social media particularly our facebook channel ray our comms officer 
um, does some great stuff on there. So connect with us on social media, go to the and have a look at the website. We'd love you to become members. Uh, we'd love you if you come to the Isle of Man, come and visit one of our nature discovery centres or come into our gift shop in Peel, um, join in that way. Beyond that, if there's a particular area of passion that you'd like to do, if you, we're, I know it's, it's not the best time in COVID, but we're really keen to develop what we're calling, you know, even more volunteering. You know, you can come and volunteer on the calf and help with the seal surveys, help with the bird monitoring. You could come and help in one of our nature reserves if you've got time to give. Um, so we'd we'd love to hear from you if you'd like to come and volunteer. But even if you just want to come across and maybe do a conservation holiday, that's something that we're piloting this year on the calf. So come and spend a week on the calf, helping monitor the Manx Shear waters, almost like a mini Earthwatch project. So we're looking at developing some some ecotourism holidays as well. So there's lots of ways you can connect. But the first one is go to our website, like us on Facebook, like us on Twitter, read some about what we do and be amazed. Yeah, no, you're you're definitely selling it to me. Not that you need to, but as soon as it's safe, I think you know I'll be over. I'll be over visiting and and seeing what you all do in person. It sounds like a really cool place. But as I say, I'm sure we could keep chatting about it all for ages. But we have run out of time, unfortunately, today. But um, thank you so much for giving me your time today, Lee. It's been lovely to chat to you, and hopefully, we'll get to see you at some point in the next year. Lovely. Thank you, Katie. All the best. Mm-hmm.